Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. As part of our final episode in our COVID series, I'm joined today by independent scholar, Dr. Munya Manauer, PhD candidate at the University of Munich, Zoeb Riaz, also known as Zoeb Bodla, and Assistant Dean of International Programs at Kent State University, Dr. Kristen Stasiowski, to discuss turning negatives into positives. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Pleasure. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Munya, would you like to start? Absolutely. So I'm calling from Arizona and it's uh, 6 a.m. here. And she looks amazing, by the way. She looks great. Like I would not look like that at 6 in the morning. Anyway, sorry, continue. (laughs) And um, so I'm having a a latte and ole, but it has three shots of espresso. So I'm good to go. (laughs) That's what I like to hear. In the eyes. Yes, and I'm, I'm originally from Morocco, uh, born and raised. Um, I came to the United States for, for grad school, so I did my master's and PhD in education and um, um, teaching English as a second language. And then um, was teaching Arabic for about eight years here in Arizona at the University of uh, Northern Arizona University and was recently laid off because of uh, COVID-19 um, budget cuts. That's me. Yeah, you are not alone, by the way. There is a slew of us, myself included, anyway, that are in the process of the very heavy job search, and it is as fun as it sounds. It is delightful. Um, Kristen, could you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Sure, absolutely. Uh, First of all, I'm coming to you this morning from Ohio, where it's nine o'clock in the morning. So uh, if I were having a drink of choice, it would be a mimosa, uh, which is a sparkling white Italian wine, Prosecco, plus orange juice. Uh, So something good to get you started in the morning. Uh, My background is in Italian language and literature, which is uh, what I did my PhD in. So that explains my choice of drink. But my administrative appointment at Kent State University is that of an assistant dean responsible for international national programs in the College of Arts and Sciences. So uh, we're in challenging waters right now, given that there are no domestic students traveling abroad and there are few international students, uh, according to what we normally see. Uh, So we've had to do a lot of adapting and pivoting, which I guess is the the word of choice now. But we're excited about what the future holds. I think that the, the way the world is right now has demonstrated that connection and communication are more important than ever. So I'm glad to be here. It's good to see all of you and hear all of you. Yeah, that was that was excellent. Really good. Uh, Soeb, you're next. Yeah, I I am now a PhD candidate at the Munich University, and my research actually revolves around the way Marxist activists negotiate with the Pakistani state in in a part of Kashmir in Pakistan, and uh, I am an independent PhD candidate. And like many, I also had to cut down my fieldwork and come back here before the flights uh, were not available. So here I am. And uh, along with that, I also am a part of a small political organization in Pakistan, which we work for the, uh, it's a small political party and we are called leftists in Pakistan. So these are all of the activities I'm trying to combine and continue with the with academic and activist life. 
Well, could I just say, so, so Abe, you have a lot of friends and I've got to say when your face went up on Facebook, I just, my phone just went ding, 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 ding. And I went, oh my gosh, look at all these people. And they're like, we love you, Soy Abe. You're so great. Oh yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's so nice. He's got such a supportive network. And I just, anyway, if they want to be my friends, I'm happy to have them be my friends as well. So anyway. I have no, con I have no control on their choices, what they want to do. It's all right. Well, one thing I think um, before we dive in or as we dive in that I think we could all agree on uh, with this pandemic is that, um, you know, despite the fact that we're all trying to find our way in the midst of chaos is that this can be difficult for everyone. But what it has caused us to do is to redirect our energies towards what is most important. And for a lot of us, I think spending time with family and rediscovering our personal hobbies tend to be the first two items that come to mind when we think about the positive outcomes as a result of the COVID crisis. So Munya, if we could start with you, could you tell us firstly a little bit about what came about as a result of the COVID crisis, as a result of getting laid out, laid off? And, you know, you talk about these stories that you've collected. What have you learned about these stories from your parents about growing up in Morocco during colonization? Thank you. Uh, well, to, to put our listeners, listeners in context, um, the, the French colonization in Morocco started in 1912 and continued all the way until 1956. And so um, my parents were kids during the, the last bits of colonization, but their parents, basically, they uh, witnessed and, and lived hands-on French colonization for years. And so... Um, so growing up in Morocco, um, my parents did not really talk much about their parents and their grandparents and how the, their life during that period was like, um, or how they maneuvered life under the French protectorate. So um, all I remember as a kid is that my grandfather lived with us for about a year prior to his passing because of complications of, re of really strong asthma. And so in March 2020, uh, later on as, as an adult <laughs> and when quarantine started due to COVID, uh, I started feeling this urge to know more about my family. So I started having my grandmother and grandfather come to my dreams at least four or five times a week. So in my mind, I'm like, this, this means something, you know, the fact that all of these years and then they, they keep coming into my dreams and they just sit and they smile. So I needed to know more about them. And uh, at that time, our university, uh, my university at that time turned to online. And so I had more time uh, after I finished um, teaching my classes and prepping to actually talk to my parents uh, even more so than, than before. So I called them and we, we talked for hours and hours. And I asked my, my parents, you, you need to tell me a little bit more about, about your, your stories growing up if you want, uh, because I would like to know. Um, how it was like for you. So my mom shared this story with me that uh, when she was a kid, her, her grandmother um, lived with them. It's very common in Morocco to have the small and big family live together. And so the grandmother, um, so I'm, I'm indigenous uh, Moroccan and our tribes are called the Amazigh, meaning the free people. And so these are the tribes that lived in Morocco prior to the Arabs coming to the area and Morocco becoming a Muslim country and then Arabic becoming one of its official languages. So, uh, and so they lived 
lived in a village close to the countryside, their land. And so their, their, her grandmother used to tell her the stories about uh, these indigenous like warrior women um, that, um, that basically defeated the enemy and saved their tribes, uh, but also were, were very brave uh, throughout the way because of you know, all the hurdles that they had to face. And so my mother said that that, that story for me made me going you know, during that time because uh, um, it, it just made me feel how th that bond of the indigenous women and that whatever comes my way, I'm going to defeat it. So, um, so she, she, she doesn't really remember all the story very well, but it comes back to her. And, it's, uh, and one, one time, maybe I'll get to tell you this story, um, but basically that's what it is. It was the bravery uh, about it. And um, my dad, on the other hand, um, told me something that I'd never known before. And it was that my, his dad, my grandfather, who lived with us for a year, he, uh, during, the, the, during the French colonization, so coloni French, Fran the French were expanding their, French, their African colonies. Um, and also not only African colonies, but they went to Vietnam at that time and they started a war in Vietnam. And so uh, mid 40s and then early 50s, my grandfather was conscribed by the French to go and fight their wars. Wow. In uh, what we call the French Indochina War. And so um, not only Morocco was dragged in, in, hand, in like first, first hand colonization, but it was also fighting the French colonial wars. <laughs> and so, um, so he, was, he was there for a few years. Um, and then my, my grandmother uh, had to like raise the, the kids by, or by herself. But he, when he came back, um, he came back with that strong asthma, which killed him later in life. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. That, I mean, I, I've got to say, um, I think that's one of the things about, you know, when, you, when you're learning about family stories, it's not just, oh, we're gathering around a fire and, you know, this is how I made cakes. And that's great. I love cakes. But I think when you're really learning about your family's history, you learn the good, the bad, and the really, really, really ugly. And I think sometimes when you're in a situation where you start to think about aspects of your family that you knew maybe were there, but you never really thought to ask, maybe because you were little, maybe because you were busy. I think sometimes when you're forced into a period of, of silence or to think about these things a bit more, in some respects, like you said, you end up learning aspects of your family that maybe you were not aware of or you weren't fully aware of and now you're starting to put the pieces together. Why is it that grandfather was like X and then maybe you, you make that connection a bit more, it makes a bit more sense. So I appreciate you sharing that. So Aib, uh, you have an interest in stamp collecting. Could you please let the listeners know what, firstly, how did you get into stamp collecting and what is a stamp collector called? Could you tell us about it? <laughs> Um, first, thank you very much. And um, I think um, my story of uh, starting with stamp collecting is not very much different than many other stamp collectors because I started collecting stamp when I was eight or nine maybe. And I was given an album by my brother who used to collect before. And I found it pretty interesting. And I still remember one of the most interesting things for me by living in Pakistan 
was that there were certain names because we are post-colonial society and everything which we are learned about the world is in English. So I would really sometimes see, for example, uh, Christine, like uh, the Polska, on the Polish stamps, there would be Polska written. And I had no idea at that time what Polska is. So I will go and try and, okay, what is Polska? No idea. So is the case with Magyar and Hungary, for example. So these kind of things really, really sparked a kind of interest in me to further explore and to come to know about the, about the outer world for me. So that's how actually my own uh, interest started in, in, in stamps. And uh, well, they are called philatelists or stamp collectors. But, uh, and I don't know, in, in our language, for example, we use the word in Urdu, ticket, for example. Okay. Uh, not a stamp or this, but we use the word ticket for the, which is also an English word. So um, I really got into, and then further was my interest in sports. So I really realized because I myself was playing cricket, for example. So I was always looking for the stamps, which depict cricket and the different cricketers from mm. different countries. And then it will, it also opened uh, a new connection for me because I would always talk with my friends that, huh, do you have some old letters in your home? You can give me some letters, you know? And this will then further, will give me an idea of some, I got some really old letters which people were writing from England to Pakistan. And then I would sometimes read them with their permission or would say they, I would, I would be really fascinated the way people have seen the same place where I was born. In a, in a quite a different way 40 years before or so. So that's how actually I came, I became, a, I, my interests actually really uh, made me very happy about it. And, but it stayed till only my teen years. And after that, I just didn't do much with those stamps and until the pandemic struck. Well, so this is interesting. So when you guys were sending me your pitches, so I had um, I quite a variety of pitches that were sent to me. One person even offered me language lessons, which wasn't really a pitch so much as a big giant question mark. But anyway, um, <laughs> point is, uh, when you guys sent me your pitches, uh, what I really liked is that they were so personal to you as an individual. And it made me want to get to know about you as a person. So when you, you know, Munya were telling me about your stories as, uh, you know, from your parents, it made me think about the stories with my parents and automatically I wanted to make that connection. So when you were talking about this idea of stamp collecting and how it was sort of like a gateway into people's stories and histories, the anthropologist in me was like, I have to talk to this person. And interestingly, when you talked about your stamp collecting, my first thought was to my dad because my dad um, was a coin collector. And in his coin collection, he was very proud of it. And he got really still mad to this day when he was 11. My uncle wanted to get ice cream. And so he went through my dad's sock drawer and found the coins that my dad had saved and took them to buy ice cream. So when my dad went to go and find his collection, he found all his coins missing. And he's still to this day, still mad at my uncle about that. But the point is there's, there's something special about these. It's not just a collection or a story, but there's a lot more meaning behind it. Yeah. Uh, and Kristen, you say um, that, you know, you, you've also developed a, sort of like a rediscovery in terms of your appreciation of nature. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
Sure, absolutely. I mean, what I find interesting thus far is, is that, you know, Munia is starting your talk by talking about dreams, uh, you know, and the, the way in which they led you to more family connections. And that's a great communication across the conscious and the unconscious. And I think that, you know, that's fascinating. And, and, and Soeb, talking about stamps, you know, they represent exchanges and they connect histories and then clearly, Anne, also your story about coins, another form of exchange. I mean, in this world where I think we're searching now more than ever for connections and to break down barriers and boundaries, I think that you know, what I see in the world of nature is that a tree is not a forest hmm. and it's not an ecosystem. It, it needs other trees in order to do that. And so part of my rediscovery uh, of nature and and subsequently also a rediscovery through nature of my own rhythms and hence my my own nature has been uh, out of a need to find different types of connections and clearly you know when you're standing in a forest uh, and you're hearing the rustling of leaves and 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 maybe you're hearing animal noises or whatnot you're you're surrounded by this feeling that there is some type of communication happening but that maybe you're not attuned to it or, or that you don't understand it enough to know what's really going on. And so that about nature fascinates me because for scientists who study trees, uh, and I'm not one who <laughs> studies trees, but I, I love and appreciate them and certainly ecosystems and forests and whatnot, there are ways in which they've been able to demonstrate a kind of communication and community amongst uh, the, the ecosystems and amongst the individual living uh, beings in them. So I find that that helps a lot when thinking about what has broken down across human communication and the way in which we tend now to think of ourselves as vulnerable through our senses. You know, COVID is, is attacking the human body and that has an effect then on what we might think of as the soul or the spirit or something along those lines. So by using and leveraging the way that the human body senses can, I think, reinvigorate and reinforce the soul or the spirit by being in a place like nature that can help you to come back to yourself a little bit. You know, there's that famous John Denver song, Annie's song, the first. Uh, oh, my dad song. loves that <laughs> song. No, oh, then, you know, you fill up mm. my senses like a night in the forest. I mean, that's mm. the, and then the mountains in springtime and a walk in the rain, you know, the song continues to suggest that we can educate and inform and, and expand and enliven our, our, our minds and hearts and spirits through a reconnection with our senses vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis nature. And so from that standpoint, my activities in nature are a little bit uh, strange. I don't identify as an athlete, but I, I've taken to doing vacation races, which sponsors races in the national parks in the United States. And so um, I've, I'm about to go to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park to do a half marathon. And then I've rediscovered my love of mountain biking, which is a whole different roller coaster through the woods. Uh, and so those activities, I think, have helped me to try and create a little bit more of a sense of community, even though a lot of, for the lot, for the most part, those things are done in, in a kind of solitude. But no, I think uh, the reflection... Yeah, no, I think you've you've really touched on some really interesting things because one thing about the three different, I mean, these are very different sort of um, discovering points for the three of you. But one thing that seems to kind of unite all three of your stories is that there are aspects of these new passions that have allowed you to feel grounded at a time when you feel like the floor has been pulled out from underneath you. So, Munya, I know that you have really gotten into journaling during this pandemic, and I was wondering if you could give us, I know journaling is quite, quite a, a common thing for a lot of people, but I don't, 
I don't know if a lot of people are aware that there are, maybe they are, uh, that there are kind of communities out there that um, journaling can be kind of a community effort. Some people do blogs, obviously. Some people do it in the privacy of their own homes. But how has journaling helped you to sort of ground yourself, uh, especially during this period? Well, first of all, thank you. I'm having a lot of fun. So thank you, Anne, for creating this space for all of us. Oh, sure. Um, and I would say, so after learning about my grandfather and how he was conscribed by the French to go fight their colonial wars, I remember being very angry, uh, very angry at France even more uh, because of like the, getting their hands dirty in the African continent. So I was really, really mad. And journaling was this decolonial tool for me. The reason why I call it a decolonial tool is because it helps me channel my anger and so I started recording feelings that I was feeling. So if I was just very angry, I could just say, I'm very angry, I'm very angry, I'm very angry. And writing that kind of helps me just stay calm and channel that anger a little bit. Um, and then because, so my grandmother who used to come into my dreams, uh, especially like uh, around March when we started the quarantine, I've never met her in my life because she died the same year I was born. Um, and, but I have the one picture I have of her is that she's dressed in, in, in like pink and she smiles. And so I wrote this poem about her. <laughs> uh, and that's also for me, a part of journaling because sometimes we tend to take up journals that just, you know, you're writing down things, uh, and it's just messy. Yes, it is messy, but it could also be poetry can be a part of your journaling if that's what you're feeling. And actually a poem came to me when I was thinking uh, about her coming into my dreams. And one of the excerpt in that journal, it says, um, you, you come to me in my dreams dressed in pink and silk and we exchange an eye smile. Oh. And it's, uh, that's it because she doesn't, she doesn't talk. She, she just smiles and her eyes say a lot to me. And, and I was able to, and this was like, what, three generations of women. I was able to feel through her this resistance um, within me to, to the colonial past and also knowing that I can't live in the colonial past. So, and journaling basically gave me that, that light. It gave me um, hope and it taught me, it taught me patience. Um, and it, it taught me how to heal through writing. Um, and That's very powerful. These family, these family archives, really, um, which the stories that, that were told to me by my parents um, were, were um, basically started this, this decolonial tool for me. And, and writing was that tool. Uh, and not, not, writing was the, the, the medium. Journaling was the tool. And so... Yeah, and, uh, and there are times I can, I can write in the morning, I can write at night before I, uh, before I go to bed. Um, and, um, and I even, it started making me think about uh, my own heritage as an indigenous woman, especially that I live so far away from my land. So I started reconnecting with my indigenousness also in a sense and um, writing about um, my memories going to uh, the farm, to my ancestors, 
sister's land and going to these uh, festivals and, and visiting family. And so I was trying so hard to make my memory work <laughs> in, in order to connect those stories from, from the past and, and what my parents have told me, their stories and also my stories. Mm. Uh, and so journaling kind of became that kind of archive that just is collecting all of these artifacts about my life and about my, my, my family pretty much. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, Saweeb, would you say, how, how would you say your experience with stamp collecting, um, do you, you, you said that you were finding yourself going through other people's stories, right? And some of these letters I would imagine were quite personal. I mean, you could easily come across a very, very interesting love letter or you could come across something else that maybe was personal that nobody wanted anybody else to know but the person's past, right? So mm-hmm. how have you found... I guess what I want to know is what sort of insights have you gotten as a result of the stamp collecting? Because I, I get the impression it's not just a stamp. There's yeah. so much more behind it. That's more just a representational object behind something bigger. Could, could you elaborate on mm-hmm. that a bit more? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you see these stamps, actually, they are just, some, just, a, just a transformation of money into a small thing which actually serve a purpose of sending a certain kind of information from one place to another. So, so the information which is actually packed in the letterbox reveals a lot. For example, I remember when I was a teenager and, and I was getting a lot of uh, uh, postcards from old postcards from the friends uh, in my hometown, which is Pak Patan in Pakistan. I would sometimes want to be really able to read all of that because I was not able to really read what he wants to say. But I remember one particular case where one person was writing about his experiences in UK, for example. And he was talking about what people think of him while he's working there as a, as a, as a waiter in a restaurant. And so these kind of uh, expressions which I got to know was really because I have never felt this kind of racism, for example, while living in my own country because I come from them. So for me, this was quite a, quite a beginning to really think that, oh, actually, there are so many things which, and I first did not believe on it. And it later in my life, whenever I would uh, remind myself of that letter, this will always build something in me before I really went abroad and I could see things in a, in a, in a different perspective. And I think during the lockdown, I learned much more about the stamps and what actually they do, what I had learned before in my teenage years. For example, when I had to come back uh, and to cut short my fieldwork visit, I just uh, randomly found my old uh, albums and went through them. And then I, because I was working on, on, um, uh, on an everyday life of political workers and what state does to them and how they do with the states, I instantly realized that the how, for example, propaganda has been a tool used by states through stamps to, to say what they want to say because stamps are not issued by private or alternative things. They are issued by the states. And states have kind of uh, very much control on the way what they want to represent of themselves and of the people they are talking about. So I went through certain... Soviet era stamps where you could clearly see how actually they are trying to, you know, 
invoke certain things in you how in a third reich what's happening there and how british when they will publish uh, stamps from different um, colonies but they would represent for example and how they would they would be always a king or a queen which which would be which would be the first thing you will see so in a way you had to see your own self also through the queen because you're always seeing that image so these these kind of things also brought me very close to my own research to see how for example pakistan has tried to represent the kashmir dispute through the through the posts or through the stamps and then i further went which maybe we could talk further about this idea of object and the study of object in our everyday lives like what objects do to us because we have always been thinking we are doing things with the objects as can also just pointed out to this uh, this fact that actually it's not what what a tree can do to you for example is also an amazing thing and we have always been thinking it's actually we what we are doing with the objects or the outer world so so this kind of thing um, i mean in anthropology we have a quite of a, quite a tradition of uh, looking on the social life of things for example and also in the last uh, decade there is lot of lot of debates on the um, agency of non human beings for example that how they form how they transform us or how they also have an equal a kind of agency as we have so so this really made my uh, interaction with the stamps very uh, mm, i would say very happy i was i really always felt really happy after spending couple of hours and using the tongs and the tweezers and transforming one stamp to another putting them in order and you know while just 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 <laughs> just thinking my my wife want to get up and ask me you should sleep now so i was really um, really happy to find or reconnect myself with this hobby in the no i think that's really good i mean i think one of the things and we'll get to you kristen in a second is it seems like um you know you you develop you start to rediscover your your hobbies right um so one of the things i've gotten into which is kind of surprised me is i got, i got really into baking so in fact i've got a sourdough that's currently rising as we speak but um it's it's kind of a nice distraction method from things that we can't control. So I know uh so Munya, you know, I would imagine journaling's got a strong impact in that sense and stamp collecting also is a chance for you to sort of step out of the world that is currently in chaos and redirect your energies towards something quite positive. And so if we could turn to Kristen for a, a brief bit, could you tell us how your rediscovery of of nature and and those sorts of things have sort of helped you to f- gain some sort of control when global circumstances are not really within your control. Absolutely. You know, I'm a little bit reflective about a circumstance in elementary school. Uh I said in my first comments that I don't identify as an athlete. Well, in elementary school, I was definitely the chubby uh unathletic um perceived as you know if you're going to choose anyone for a team you'd be the, I'd be the last choice in fact i think that most of my classmates picked me for dodgeball just because i was a <laughs> target, the target. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> and so i remember very clearly that in scheduled recreation time for for physical education the um very dedicated 
PE instructor had a drum that she would beat and she would say, every time that I'm beating this drum, you all need to run around in circles. And then when I stop beating it, you need to freeze and do sit-ups or push-ups or try and climb a rope attached to the ceiling. So my horror was that I, you know, the constant beating of this drum and trying to run and being winded and sweaty and awkward uh, and so, you know, everyone says you need to uh, go to the beat of your own drum. But here I am, very young, having to go to the beat of someone else's drum. And so for most of my young life, um, through high school uh, and even college, I really thought to myself, I'm, I'm just not going to ever be physically fit the way that I want to be. I'm not going to have a relationship with my body or athleticism that's going to be what I want. Because I had this experience that I always had to do it according to somebody else's rhythm, somebody else's timing, someone else's rules, someone else's standards. Uh, and so I think that uh, the advantage of doing um, what I've done now in COVID in terms of trying to take upon myself the opportunities to do things a little bit on my own and experimenting has allowed me to understand that the world, in a sense, with the responsibilities of work and the pressures of family and, uh, you know, even the alarm clock, uh, I was always, in some way, subject to someone else's drum. And therefore, I couldn't regulate myself according to any of my own rhythms. So if I had to write, I had to write during the time in the day that was allotted for me between one responsibility and another to write. Whether I had an idea or an inspiration or even the willingness to do it, that was the time it had to happen or it wasn't going to happen at all. Instead now, uh, in terms of giving up a little bit on those outside external structures that, that usually command my life, I've been able to return to, well, what are my own rhythms? You know, is there an hour of the day when I can work more successfully? When I'm scheduling meetings with my team, what is going to be a way in which the team is going to function a little bit better? And it's maybe more attentive to the way in which some of those structures that we've had around our lives, they give us a sense of control and maybe even a sense of purpose, can in effect also in some way be restraining us or constraining us and not allowing us to have that flexibility and, and fantasia would be the word in Italian, uh, to allow us really to chart our own course. And again, in thinking of the nature theme, you know, there are trails in the woods and <laughs> I'm not good with a compass, so I usually follow them. But I like the idea that there's also an uncharted part now of things in that part of the world where you might perceive chaos or you might perceive disorder or you might perceive danger. Uh, and instead, I feel like, no, you can also perceive adventure and freedom and limitlessness. And so I see a real strong connection there between um, you know, my rediscovered love of nature and uh, a way of coming to a centering within my own nature. Oh, I think that's, that's a really good way to put it. And I, I have a couple more questions I would like to ask the three of you before we start to wrap, uh, wrap this up. Um, Munya, starting with you, are there aspects of these new discoveries in terms of journaling, in terms of learning about family history, that you think you might be able to incorporate into your professional life as well as, you know, as, uh, while we also try to sort of adjust to this new type of normal? Yes. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, I think, so my background coming uh, out of grad school was in education, but specifically narrative, narrative inquiry, qualitative research. And so conversing with my parents about these, these histories and family histories and stories, uh, definitely made me realize that um, that this family archive helped me look at narrative in a whole other way. 
and uh, story in a whole other way. And I think as, as, educa as an educator, um, I would say that this, this is important because we have to recognize the narratives and the stories that our students come with to our classrooms. And unfortunately, in this world of injustice and <laughs> inequities due to race, gender, sexual orientation, and the list is long, we, we tend to have this very um, dominant narrative, white dominant narrative. And so uh, often you see a lot of students in the classroom not having that voice or having to go with, uh, to steal Kristen's um, uh, words, you know, other, other person's drum, other person's rhythm. So, and for us as educators, what are we doing to make sure that our students are respected and valued? And we are valuing not only the fact that they're there, but in, we, we're valuing the experiential knowledge that they bring with them to the classroom. And so, and whether it's K through 12 or higher ed, this idea of, of acknowledging, valuing, and respecting each student's narrative as they come to the classroom is key. So that's for me something that I'm going to continue to, to practice until I am no longer an educator, until I die. <laughs> that's basically some of the, this type of exercise and this type of, of writing stories, listening to stories, reflecting on one's identity, grippling with things you don't understand kind of made me realize that I have to like go and create that space and hold space, most importantly, hold space for, for these students uh, whenever, whenever it is time for me to go back out there to higher ed and start uh, continue practicing. I think that's a really good point because one of the things I found when I was teaching in Italy specifically is I found that writing for them was a chance for them to be, make themselves a bit vulnerable. So they were being a bit vulnerable to me, but then in turn, I needed to be a bit vulnerable for them. So if I shared something about, for me, it was I had a huge language barrier. I confused swear words with actual words and they thought it was hilarious. I was mortified. But I think this idea of, of showing them that you're human and I think in the same turn it allows them to show that they're human as well. And so there's a forgiveness there. And I think writing can allow that, which is can be quite um, inspiring, I think, in many respects. Saweb, how about yourself? What about um, the habits and the sort of, you know, we, we do talk about stamp collecting, but I think what about the, you know, going back to the things that you loved as a teenager? How, how do you think you might be able to apply that to your professional life as well as to, um, uh, you know, the new adjustments that we're having to make? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, for me, this really, uh, this uh, reconnecting with my childhood hobby really helped me first to really think of my childhood as a, as a different way that I was always looking for something and to really rekindle the memories which, which were associated with stamps which I had from those times. And that was really nice. That was really very, very good. And then I could remember also that, oh, I got this stamp from that friend. Maybe I should contact him again. So on a personal level, this really helped me to reconnect my own childhood during this pandemic. And on the second level, this helped me on two levels for example, it helped me to connect what they call a social philately on internet to 
communicate with the other people who are connecting who are collecting stamps and have quite the knowledge of stamps and are very much into that to showcase my own collection and to hear about their stories and to share what actually i can show from my stamp and which story it is telling so it actually helped me because i in my everyday life from a pretty social person and for me it was not really easy to to have this kind of situation where i really have to keep a social distancing or not going to meet someone personally or you know um to really spend some time with someone and laugh on something so it helped me to really connect with the people across the globe and then it helped me a lot for my own ongoing phd research because i had seen that usually uh, we have a tradition to write a, for example when we write a thesis we write one chapter about the history of that area on which we are working or a historical perspective of that area so i then decided to see this through a postal history for example because i think history is something which is still not been written or history is something which is not still been told so i thought in that perspective actually there hasn't been any work to see the history of pakistani administration kashmir through the letters because um because as munia munia said that in, in kashmir also there were so many british soldiers from kashmir around more than 50000 people from kashmir served in the british army and fought around the war and they wrote a lot of letters so 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 this came into in, into my in, into my research to to go through those letters i mean i couldn't find still many but only a couple of letters i could find and to see how actually the state itself i mean the pakistan the state which is controlling how they have represented the state and through i found so many propaganda stamps for example issued by pakistan and the stamps which actually predict or somehow kind of glorify a kind of a violence which is being happening there so all of these things really helped me to see these tiny pieces of uh, of historical value in a way that they actually can change my own perspective like they are not simply uh, they have also a kind of agency let's say in this way which actually can change you the way you think because they are kind of pieces which are frozen in time they they you can't after issuing the stamp you you can't do anything with that it stays what it was so this is i am really i'm really glad that i i could incorporate this thing into my own research and also to have my to increase my social circle online and also this was one thing because when i realized i won't be able to do a field work for some time i i i had to i i took a course for example of artificial intelligence and started to see how digital ethnography or these emerging fields can actually so i had to spend a lot of time to really track down those people in my field work what yeah. are they doing what are they showing this and so so i think this all came all together for me i would say Yeah, I think that that's it's really interesting. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes what seems like the, literally physically the smallest of things can actually have quite a profound effect. Kristen, do you have anything to add from your own experiences? Sure, you know, a great deal of my work deals with intercultural communication uh, and so from that standpoint, um a lot of people seem to think that communication is just incessant talking and and sharing. 
And yet my grandfather said that we have two ears and one mouth because we should listen more than we should speak. And so I would say that I think that listening is the first step to building bridges between people. And so throughout this period of COVID, I've really tried to help my students understand the way that they can become better listeners. And so uh, given my newfound love of nature, I returned to Ovid. And you'll all recall that in book one of Ovid, there's that great story of Apollo and Daphne. Apollo was chasing Daphne and she wants to escape him. And so she begs to be turned into a tree. And there's this wonderful line that when Apollo, appalled having seen her turn into a tree, goes up really close to the, to the bark, to the, the trunk of the tree. And Ovid writes that Apollo can hear the fluttering of Daphne's heart beneath the bark. And so I now say to my students that they should place themselves in a condition whereby they can hear the fluttering of someone's heart underneath the exterior protective outside that a person has maybe constructed in order to defend themselves from what they perceive as an aggression, an attack, or so on and so forth. And yet I also tell my students, using the same tree imagery now, that this moment of COVID is going to be visible in their lives forever. They're, they, they're in some way, whether they purposefully or, or unconsciously absorb this trauma, the trauma will be evident like everything is evident in the rings of a tree. And yet that doesn't have to be a debilitating and um, destructive force, just like the, the rings of a tree. The rings are created because the tree is growing and becoming stronger and more rooted to the things that keep it grounded, yet also more capable of touching the sky. So I tell my students that from that standpoint, not all trauma is meant to, to be destructive. It's meant, to, in a sense, to give us also connection to things and that we can find ourselves suspended between that which grounds us and that which we aspire for. Uh, so long as we can keep our ears open to others, but also to ourselves. So again, I, I see in the connection to nature and in the mythologies of our narratives that the, there's a lot that the students can learn from that can begin to build bridges to other people. I think that that's brilliant advice. Um, in fact, if we could, just real quickly before we wrap up, what advice do the three of you have for those who are really struggling to find what makes them happy during this time? Munya, could we start with you? Um, I would say, well, for, I mean, unfortunately, the pandemic is still here and people are still dying from it. There's a lot of health disparities due to race. There's a lot of police brutality happening in the United States right now. Um, and in the midst of all this, people are still trying to find justice and hope, um, whether it's through, through protest or whatever form that is going to bring about that social um, justice, which which is uh, very important, and I hope that that um, this ends soon, and we, we could see a, a better world. It, it sounds like a cliche, but 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 I really do hope so because it's the 21st century. I mean, come on, like it's time. Uh, but I would say that um, because there's a lot of fear uh, of the unknown, and um, when when we are um, when we are in, in, a, in a situation where we are products of our own upbringing, where we find ourselves resisting um, something because that's what the social norms have taught us to do. Um, I think my, my advice would be simply, uh, and that advice I gave to myself uh, five months ago or four months ago, is basically to just listen to your inner voice. If you really sit there and you try to listen to your inner voice, it, it will have a positive message for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I will just leave it, leave it there because 
it, it's it's with 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 this neoliberal consumerist world that we live in. We're always like on the go. It's sometimes hard to just sit and and kind of like we evaluate what's important in life and what can we do to make this world better. And Absolutely. I think that person just sits there and kind of like really, really listen, listens to that inner voice, um, then, then they might find some happiness and some peace in that. That's brilliant. Uh, Soeib, quickly, yourself as well, what advice do you have? Yeah, I think it's very, I mean, in a way, these times were good because you really know that you are not going to meet someone and no one is coming to visit you soon. So I think this is a perfect time which gives you a kind of um, space where you can concentrate on anything. And my advice, for example, would be to get interested in the objects around us or the life or the, or, or the things which we never really realized that how those things or the objects are changing the what we are and the way we think about the world. And I think for me, what has really been fascinating experience in, 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 this, in, this, in this way also personally was that my wife was pregnant. So also, I also had a constant, um, very lively feeling in the house running. But along that, on a, on a personal level, when I would think of a child coming out of, uh, coming in the corona times, this will also put me in a pressure. And this will also make me about the environment in which we live or the objects which actually surround us and how to deal with those objects in, in, our, in, a, in, in a way that you start making sense of the, um, of the material life around you or the material conditions in which we live. So I think I, I would just say that at interested in the material environment around us is very important also to really what Munya said to it helps you to listen to your inner voice or to listen to see what you are because our life is very much constructed around the objects starting from clothes to everything and we are just a product of in a way of the objects so it's all I would like to say and Kristen would you do you have any final thoughts for our listeners regarding the similar topic Oh, sure. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. It's the last one. <laughs> well, like I said at the beginning of uh, my comments, a, a tree is not a forest and a tree is not an ecosystem. So I would say that, uh, you know, a person, it, it needs other people. And I think that we need to, as, as a society and as families and as individuals, start really thinking more about the common good and what can unite us if we can work together. And I really appreciate what Mark Twain said about travel uh, helping us to adopt a more charitable view of other people. So my advice would be, along with listening more than speaking, try to adopt a charitable view of other people. Work hard at the task of trying to find something that can relate you to someone else, especially when that person is different from you and holds different views than you and kind of violently clings to presumptions and stereotypes. That is when we are most called upon, I think, to be patient and to be accepting and to try and work to find a bridge to another person. You have to go out on that limb using the idea of a tree uh, to try and be that change. And I think that having that type of conviction of the heart and not allowing yourself to kind of degenerate into just a small little protective uh, cove during this time is how we're going to all be able to develop communities that can confront all of the difficulties 
I mean, now more than ever, I think we realize that we're all together on this planet, can be infected, affected, and infected by everything else. So start a positive idea virus to confront the negative coronavirus and, and try and really make uh, your world better in increments by trying to listen to and appreciate what others around you bring to the table, as hard as that may be at times. Perfect. Well, with that, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Dr. Munya Manaur, Soeb Riaz, and Dr. Kristen Staziaski. Staziaski, yes, for joining us at the studio Bravo. this afternoon. <laughs> Grazie. For joining us at the studio this afternoon, as well as our silent audience who have been quietly listening in on the sidelines as they gear up for next month's first workshop on podcast production. Additional material regarding today's topic is available in the show notes. If you like today's show, consider listening to Dr. Staziaski's guest lecture on discovering your talents during times of crisis. All you need to do is become a CNC Patreon supporter by September 18th. Otherwise, many thanks to our new patron supporters for helping to keep our show going. Linda R., Linda C., Kellyanne, Laska, Lillian, Valentina, Nicole, Catherine, Lee, Sophie, Michelle, Nicolette, Lucia, Sarah Louise, Julia, Mary M., and Mary C. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.